0: Well, welcome back tonight, church family. Those of you in person and online, we uh, are going to attempt to cover the Southern Kingdom tonight. And uh, what I've given you handout-wise, I-, I didn't come up with that. I stole it from some resource, uh, which is why you're not getting charged for it. So we don't aren't guilty of anything. Uh, but that is a great everything we've covered over the last several weeks, going back to the death of Saul. Um, going back to the end of 1 Samuel. What what this attempts to do is basically give you kind of a harmony of what are the major events based on the major uh, people, specifically uh, kings and and several of the prophets. Where is that found in Kings and Chronicles? So uh, hopefully that can be helpful to you. You'll see some things that we've already gone over, and you'll see some things after tonight we will go over. If, as you read through there, you see something that sounds strange... Like on page two, Solomon's vision. There's no Solomon. that's called a typo. And it's not my fault, because I copied it from another resource. So, oh, thank you. Just know, hopefully that'll be helpful to you. I find those things helpful if you're, you're trying to navigate, because this is the part where it gets confusing. So if you got your Bibles, we got a lot to cover. So if you'll go back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going back a little bit. If you remember last week, we started at 1 Kings, or sorry, not 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 12. Uh, you will remember uh, last week, this is where we started as well. And last week we took our time and we walked through basically the Northern Kingdom. It's at this point that the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, the United Kingdom divides. And uh, Rob, when we get a chance to put that divided kingdom map, let's, we'll put that one back up. The kingdom divides in two. And uh, here we are. And so uh, you see this is, the, this is the kingdom under David and uh, Solomon at its height. And then, Rob, let's hit that next slide. And then, boom, here we are split. Uh, Judah, remember, is the southern kingdom. We're going to see why that is today. So look with me real quick. Uh, 1 Kings 12, then Rehoboam, that's the son of son of Solomon, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, uh, there they called to him and they came to Rehoboam and they said, so Jeroboam, if you remember last week, he's going to be the one who steals the tribes, the 10 tribes away and starts the northern kingdom. But you'll see how it plays out here. How do we get there? Uh, the, The people come to Rehoboam and say, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and the heavy yoke which he put on and we will serve you. And he said, depart from me for three days, then return to me. So the people show up and say, hey, your dad made life really tough. He had a lot of taxes. There was a lot of stuff going on. Can you ease up? And so then King Rehoboam, verse 6, consulted with the elders who served his father while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? They told Rehoboam, if you, would, if you will be a servant to this people today, and you will serve them and grant their petition and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. So the guys who counseled his dad say to him, look, if you will, king, not see yourself as the great ruler, but you will see yourself as a servant leader, these people will honor you, these people will follow you, and you have no problem. And then in one of the great irony statements of the Bible, but he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they gave him, and he consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he consulted his buddies who were only going to tell him, yes, And so he comes back and says, nope, I'm not going to do it. Um, Verse 14, my father made your yoke heavy, but I'm going to add to your yoke. Uh, My father disciplines you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. And it's going to be when the people of Israel see this, verse 16, that they did not listen. They say, what portion do we have in David? What inheritance in the son of Jesse? To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own David. So Israel departed to their tents. And this is the reason why Jeroboam is able to come in and seduce the ten tribes away from the southern kingdom. So it's Rehoboam's foolishness and his self-centeredness and his pride that will open the door to the splitting of the kingdom. And look with me further in chapter 12, uh, verse 20. uh, Sorry, not chapter 12. I need to turn the page here. Chapter 14, verse 21. So the next several chapters deal with Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. Then we go back to Rehoboam in chapter uh, chapter 14, verse 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 when he became king. He reigned 17 years from Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name. Uh, his mother's name was Namah, the Am- uh, Ammonitess, uh, which is a reminder, Rehoboam is not from uh, a woman that God was in favor of Solomon marrying, but was from one of the wives. Solomon was not to have married. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked God to jealousy more than all their fathers had done, which the sins which they had committed. Now catch that. That means that whole generation in the wilderness who put God to the test and God let them wipe out in the wilderness. Judah now, in their wickedness, has done more sinful things than even that generation. So understand the context of that statement. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxurious tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispelled before the sons of Israel. So I read that to tell you, the kingdom splits, you have a foolhardy, power-hungry king who leads the people and the people and the king walk in idolatry. That's how. So at this point, both places are jacked up. We're walking in idolatry. We're walking in sinfulness. Neither place is honoring the Lord. So Rehoboam reigns. Uh, he will he will have a 17 year reign and die. Then you see Abijam come to the throne. Abijam will reign for three years and die. And then you see King Asa. Now for King Asa, uh, that's first that's in First Kings 15 verse 8. But I'm going to ask you to flip over to Second Chronicles. We're going to be back and forth in, in, in really 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles most of the night. But 2 Chronicles chapter 14, now we've, uh, sometime in, in the last uh, year, we've, we've looked at 2 uh, Chronicles 14 on a Sunday morning, but 14, 15, and 16 are three chapters describing Asa's reign. Uh, Asa comes to the throne, and in verse 2, 2 Chronicles 14, 2, it says, Asa did good, And right in the sight of the Lord, he removed the foreign altars in the high places. He tore down the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherim. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places, the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. So he comes to the throne. He rejects the idolatry and the sinfulness of his father and his grandfather. He calls the people of Judah back to to the one true God, to rightful worship, Not only that, but as they turn to rightful worship, he begins to rebuild cities and fortifications. Um, He recognizes in there that they have a God, because they are seeking God, God has granted them rest. And then we see uh, Zerah the Ethiopian come up from the south with an army greater. And of course, this is the great passage where Isaac cries out, Lord, there's no one besides you to help in battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord, O God, for we trust in you, your name. And you see this routing, God delivers them, and so you see a king who leads the people back to right worship, who in the interim raises up the fortifications, who prepares the place for battle. But then, when battle comes, doesn't get cocky and thinks he knows what to do, and like those under Joshua, seeks the Lord's guidance, seeks the Lord's deliverance, and the Lord shows up and does exactly what He promises to do in the covenant, and they have victory. And then you come into chapter, uh, chapter fifteen, and um. Azariah, uh, the prophet, steps up to meet Asa as they're coming back to Jerusalem with the spoils. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you if you're with him, and if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And he, he begins to go on, and he calls them to a greater work. And then in chapter 15, you see Asa continue these reforms and, and, and move even more so. He even removes uh, his own mother, from the position of Queen Mother, because she, uh, she brought a pagan uh, idol there. And so you see in 15, he is taking their forms even more serious. And here's what's interesting about King Asa. When you get to chapter 16, in the 36th year of his reign, Baasha, king of Israel, comes up against Judah. So the northern kingdom's coming to attack the southern kingdom. And then Asa, in response, brings out silver and gold from the treasuries. He sends them to the king of Aram, who lives in Damascus, and says, hey, let's make a a treaty so that I'm not having to deal with both, and and we'll both go against Israel. So Asa Asa gets politically savvy. He's had all these years of success. He takes some money out of the Lord's treasury, makes a deal. He listens. It works. And then look at verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hands. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with many chariots and horses, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand? For the eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely, simplistically of one mind his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer, and he put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. And then look with me at the, at the very end here. Look at verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased. So three years later, he became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physician's. Now, it's not a statement saying you shouldn't go see a doctor. If you get sick, just seek God. That's kind of like I said Sunday. If you got a headache and you refuse to take Advil for it, I'm I'm not sure that the issue is with your faith, but with your intelligence. God created Advil, so take some Advil. What it's making a statement is God has introduced something of discipline in Asa's life, and even the painfulness of that discipline is not enough for Asa to seek the Lord. Instead, he's going to go and seek human routes only. And then it, this is an interesting, so Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign, so two years later. Then they buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David, which they, and they laid him in the resting place filled with spices, various whatever. Here's why I point that out to you. He is it's common when the king dies, they'll make a statement, and so-and-so died and slept with his fathers, and if they were a king the people liked, they were, he was, then they're buried with the other kings. If it's a king who's terrible and the people don't like, then they're buried somewhere else. He is the only king that the statement is made. He is buried in his own tomb, cut by his own hand. I point this out to you to say, Asa starts off incredible, and there is great reform in the land. But Asa will end his reign not walking with God, not because there is a single piece of idolatry mentioned to a false god, but because he becomes self-reliant. What does Asa in is not that he bows down to an idol of Baal, but that he bows down to himself and his own human competency and not the Lord. Man, so much could be said there, but we got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to keep moving forward. Uh, after Asa, you're going to see King Jehoshaphat. Some of you just thought that was a crazy word that you heard growing up. you know King Jehoshaphat. Uh, his son becomes king over his place uh, he, uh, and, and, and made his position over Israel firm. Uh, you see in Jehoshaphat verse three there in chapter 17, second chronicles that he followed the example of his father David's earlier days. He did not seek the bells, he sought the God of his father. He did not act as Israel did. The Lord established the kingdom in His control. All Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. He had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord. He again removed the high places of the Asherim from Judah. So even though his father did, obviously people are going to go set stuff up and walk in nonsense. And Jehoshaphat continues to tear the stuff down and bring about, uh, bring about. Performs. It says in verse 10, the dread of the Lord was over the the lands that were around Judah. So under Asa, under Jehoshaphat's reign, all of these peoples, God is protecting Judah. God is with Judah. You read about all the 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 uh, the the defenses and the the size of the army and this thing. Now it's gonna be in Jehoshaphat's time. I'm gonna give you a little summary here. In Jehoshaphat's time, this is around the time to the end of King Ahab's reign. So we we looked at Elijah and Ahab uh, three different Sundays. Last week we saw Ahab. It's going to be under Joseph, uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab's reign. In fact, it's Joseph, uh, Jehoshaphat, It's Ahab and Jehoshaphat uh, deciding to fight together as allies where Jehoshaphat's going to say, hey, I want to hear from your prophets. Is God going to give us victory in this battle? And so all of, of the prophets of God that Ahab keeps come in, all of his yes-men and say, yep, yeah, God's going to give you victory. And Jehoshaphat's pretty shrewd and he goes, well, surely there's another prophet, someone here who, and Ahab goes, yeah, there's a guy who always disagrees with me, and that's when they bring Micaiah in, and it's Micaiah who prophesies Ahab's death, and then you see Ahab die in battle. That's the end of 1 Kings. So it's the same time frame, and we're going to see Jehoshaphat. He allies himself with Ahab. We see there in chapter 18, that word from, uh, word from Micaiah, Ahab dies. You get to chapter 19, Jehoshaphat goes back to Judah safely then Jehu, the son of Hanani, right? Hanani's the prophet who tells Asa, Asa, God literally sits in heaven scouring the earth to look for anyone whose heart is devoted to him. And not just to look for that one who's devoted to him, but should give strength and power and aid and support to that person. Well, it's his son Jehu who now speaks to Jehoshaphat and rebukes him saying, should you help the wicked uh, and, the lo- and and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself but there is some good in you so basically it says look God's not pleased that you're that you're playing friends with the wickedness of Israel however, you've still held the line against idolatry and so you see more uh, reforms instituted. you see in chapter 20 the land has evaded invaded uh, uh, Judah again. they gather to seek of course this is Jehoshaphat's uh, prayer is the passage I preached almost a year ago in view of a call. We see that uh, the prayer is answered. God brings, God brings discipline. But Jehoshaphat's alliances displeased. Look in verse uh, chapter 30, uh, chapter twenty, verse thirty-five. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in doing so. He allied himself with with him to make ships go to Tarshish. That they and they made ships in Ezeon-Geber. Uh, and so here he gets in trouble because he just, there's this penchant. Jehoshaphat doesn't bow down in idolatry, but he's got this penchant for partnering with people who do that God has said, don't do that. And so you see Jehoshaphat, who overall pretty good king, like his dad Asa, but they also got some things that do them in. And then we see Jehoram come to the throne. So Asa reigns 41 years, Jehoshaphat reigns 25 years, and then Jehoram comes to the throne, around 884 to 881 BC. It's in this time that the prophet Obadiah will step onto the scene, provided that the Obadiah mentioned uh, in Second Kings is the same Obadiah as the writer. Most assume that it is. It's possible that possible that it's not, possible that Obadiah was another Obadiah later, but for the sake of our outline, this is where we're going to put, we're going to assume they're the same. Uh, Obadiah, the name means servant of uh servant of the Lord. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. So when you ever need a little trivia for your Bible trivia, shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. It's 21 verses. Um, And based on what Obadiah describes, it seems to be describing, prophesying about events that are going to actually happen several hundred years later once Jerusalem, once Judah falls to Babylon. He's prophesying the destruction of Edom. Now, Edom are the peoples down here, it's People southeast. Edom are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And as such, they carry a, a kind of protection from the Lord. They didn't get conquered by, by the descendants of Jacob. Uh, but they are going to be guilty. In fact, they're doomed. Uh, Obadiah is going to, going to call them out on several things. One, their excessive pride. They thought they were secure and and, and safe because of their military and geographic position. In addition, it's their treatment of Israel. When Israel's defeated, Edom is pictured as standing by, watching the Babylonians pillage the people, mocking them, laughing at them, and then robbing and imprisoning those who are refugees. And like most of the prophets, this doom is, is proclaimed on Edom, but then there is a deliverance for the people of Judah. That's Obadiah. The theme, the doom of Edom and the ultimate deliverance of Judah. Now, back to the king. So, this was during Jehoram's time on the throne for eight years. Following Jehoram, Ahaziah will come to the throne, but he will quickly get killed. He will quickly get killed by Ataliah, the queen mother. And so, you'll see on that, you're on somewhere on that list, they you Ataliah. Ataliah was actually the ruler of Judah queen. There's a period of time where the queen reigns on the throne. In fact, it's six years. She thinks she's wiped out all of the remaining uh, heirs, except that one of the heirs is protected and hidden from her. And you'll find in, uh, you'll find this in 2 Kings 11, or since I'm right here in Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles 23. And then at a certain point, they bring out Je- uh, Jehoiada, or Jehoiada brings out uh, Joash, and the people pledged loyalty to Joash, seeing that the true king of the Davidic line back Ataliah, verse 12 of chapter 23, comes running out. Uh, she came into the house of the Lord to the people. She looked, behold, the king was standing by his pillar at the entrance. The captains and the trumpeteers were beside the king. Uh, and she tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. But Jehoiada, the priest, brought out the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said, bring her out uh, to the ranks. And whoever follows her, put her to death with the sword. Uh, but let her not be put to death in the in the house of the Lord in the temple. So they seized her when she arrived at the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. And then you see Jehoiada, the priest, he is leading this young king, Joash, and he is making reforms. Listen to what he says. Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. All the people went to the house of Baal. They tore it down. They broke in pieces his altars and his images. They killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars because... Because in this time after Jehoshaphat, idolatry has come back into Judah. So they tear it all down. Jehoiada placed the offices of the house of the Lord back under the authority of the Levitical priests as they were assigned. And so he sets everything up. Joash is deeply influenced by him. Uh, You see Joash restores the house of the Lord. Uh, He he gathers the priests. The temple is repaired. They are restoring worship. And then ultimately, Joash will then turn. He will not remember verse 22 of chapter 24. He does not remember the kindness of his father Jehoiada, but he murders his son. And as he died, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. And so then Aram rises up again. Aram, who Asa, had he trusted in the Lord, would have defeated. But because he trusted in himself, he made an alliance with them. They survive and they are persistently a thorn in in Judah's side. Uh, Aram will evade, and uh, in there, um, Joash will die. So a king. So we see this pattern in some of the good kings so far of Judah. They start well. They institute reforms, and they don't fall to idolatry, but they fall to other reasons that have to do with pride, self-dependence, political alliances, perhaps distrust of God's character, but they start well end poorly. This is Joash, Amaziah, and in his time, sorry, in his time, the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel will be active in his reign. Uh, Joel, now listen, there is some debate, Joel, whether it was if whether the prophet Joel was here or whether he's after they returned from Israel, based on the stuff I've studied, felt comfortable saying this is where he comes in, but just understand it's possible he could be later. It does not impact at all what he says. His name means the Lord is God, and ultimately what he is uh, proclaiming in his prophecy is that there is an imminent day of the Lord coming. And we need to repent in light of this and that ultimately when the day of the lord comes here's what it's going to look like and that's what you're going to hear repeated at pentecost when peter's preaching in the temple when he says the prophet joel said that when the day of the lord comes your sons and your daughters would prophesy they would be filled with the spirit of god and he says you're seeing this fulfilled today at pentecost and so there's your ties with joel it's it's a great short book um and that that deals with the coming day of the Lord, the call to repent, what the day of the Lord's going to look like, the future judgment of the nations, and based on how it's used in the New Testament, you understand that parts of it are already, but all of it is not yet. We live in the day, according to Peter, where our sons and daughters prophesy because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, but the full day of the Lord hasn't fully come yet. We await that day as He returns. This will be in that time, but Amaziah comes to the throne uh, he will reign, and then after Amaziah comes to the throne, he will, he will die, and you will see Uzziah come to the throne. And Uzziah is going to reign. Uh, he's going to have a long, prosperous reign. Uh, he is going to, you see this in 2 Chronicles 26, as well as 2 Kings 14 and 2 Kings 15. Uh, he's going to restore. Uh, Uzziah was 16 years old. He's going to reign 52 years. He's going to say in verse four, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding through the visions of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So what you have with Uzziah is you have a king who is seeking God. He is leading the people to honor God. He is heeding the word of God's prophets. And in many ways, if you study the reign of Uzziah, um, maybe this, this is going to hit more for uh, th- those of you who are older in the room uh, than even, uh, even my generation, but from studying and looking at it, the best way I could give you a contemporary example of what was the nation of Judah like in terms of power, prosperity, safety, peace. Uh, think if, if Ronald Reagan's America had lasted for 52 years. That, that's the kind of Uzziah was beloved. He was a good king. He was, that's the kind of reality that you're facing. And I, and I set that up to tell you, one, ultimately, as far as Uzziah, we're going to see in Second in Chronicles chapter 26, uh, verse 16, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud, he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord as God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He, he became proud, and, and, and what he did there is he, he assumed for himself a role that is designated for the priest, not for the king. So Isaiah, at some point in his reign, he looks and he goes, look at all that God has done, look at how I walk with God, look at how close God and I are, and he usurps, though, something that was not reserved for him. And so again, let me just see this pattern. These good kings in Judah start well. God blesses them. You see strength. You see peace. You see might. You see, and all of them for reasons that center somewhere around pride, fail. Part of why I bring up the Ronald Reagan thing and what it was like is it's under Uzziah's reign that we're going to see who? Any Bible trivia, people? What's the most famous passage in the Bible about Uzziah's death? In the year of the king Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on his throne in his temple. So if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, it's going to be in Uzziah's day that Isaiah, the prophet, begins his ministry. In fact, his ministry really starts uh, at, in, in the year King Uzziah dies. So in verse chapter 6, verse 1 of Isaiah, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. The reason I bring up Uh, The the comparison to Ronald Reagan's America is for for many Americans, there was this feeling in in the 80s of we are peaceful, we are secure, we are are tight, society is good, we are seeing things prosper, we are, now it wasn't true for everyone, but for many that was the case. Well, if that's what Uzziah's reign was, in the year of King Uzziah's death, in the year where all of a sudden the safety and security of national leadership has ended, the king has died, in the year of King Uzziah's death, and the year of transition, the year of not knowing what's next, I saw the Lord, where? Sitting on his throne. And the year the king fell off his throne, the Lord was still sitting on his throne. Lofty, exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew, and one another they called out, "'Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory.'" and the foundations of the the thresholds trembled, and the voice of Him who who called out while the temple was filling with smoke, smoke there always being an an instance of, of glory, of splendor, and then I said, woe is me. Literally, bring hell upon me, okay? This is not some wimpy cry of, oh, woe is me. This is, I want to be absolutely obliterated right now, for I am a man of, I am ruined, I am A man of unclean lips, I live of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the hosts. All of a sudden, in the year of King Uzziah's death, we see Isaiah, whose name means the Lord is salvation. The tradition says Isaiah's father is a brother of King Amaziah, which would make Isaiah a cousin to King Uzziah. His wife was a prophetess. He had two kids with prophetic names. It's going to be this, uh, this Isaiah who sees the Lord sitting on his throne, seraphim fascinating little statement, right? Peter says what about our salvation in 1st 1 Peter 1:13 1, says that our salvation what you and I have right now with the assurance of, of what else is coming that the angels wish they could get a quick second glance for just a split second through the crack of the door at it. Isn't that crazy? Angels have if they're by default of being an angel, if there's an angel it means they have not sinned. They're morally pure says that angels are beings more glorious than us. If an angel showed up right now, we would all fall in terror and some of us would pee our pants. (laughs) Angels don't show up, even in the New Testament, when the angels show up uh, to John, the apostle, Patmos. It's glory, it's splendor. But do you notice in this passage as these angels are there in the presence of the the Most High God, praising Him, morally perfect. They have wings that cover their eyes and their feet. Because even though they are morally perfect, they are not holy, holy, holy. Even though they are morally perfect, they are still creature and He is still Creator. Creator. Holy, holy, holy doesn't refer to just moral perfection, but it also means separate, unique, different. The triple repetition means God is not just holy. He's not just greatly holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is holy to the farthest extent one can be holy. Yet it says for you and I and the salvation we have that we will see Him face to face. And so I say that just as a pause to say this scene where where Isaiah sees the glory of God and recognizes complete and utter sinfulness and is in terror as the angels are covering themselves because they are not even worthy. The salvation that you and I have, if you in fact are saved by grace through faith by the blood of Jesus Christ, the salvation you have right now is, is what those angels who are right now hovering around the throne of God wish they could see for a split second. Yet how often do we think our salvation really isn't that great? Oh man, only if only if only what you and I have right now. Those very angels who right now are around the throne wish they could get just not even a taste, just wish they could see what we have for a split second through the crack of the door. Because what we have is so great. If we find that salvation in God is lackluster, it is not because it is lackluster. It is because our hearts are off. Isaiah, the holiness of God exposes his sin, but praise God. God in his holiness wants to redeem sinners. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal, uh, which he had taken. He touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? Trinity, triune God. Then I said, here am I, send me. He didn't say, here I am, as if God was unaware of his location. He said, here am I, I surrender. Send me. What is the proper response to a holy, holy, holy God? Uh, when, when, I, when you hear me talk about invitation on Sunday and God is inviting us to respond, whether it's in an invitation like in worship or whether it's just, just in a moment of a day, the proper response is always, here am I, Lord. Any other response is lesser than what we respond to the holy, holy, holy God. The book of Isaiah next to Psalms is the most referenced Old Testament book in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, time we just... Uh, We won't have time to cover everything that is in there, even in an overview level tonight. It's got 100 citations. There's there's almost 500 allusions. In fact, some estimate that one out of every 17 verses in the New Testament contains material influence from Isaiah. Uh, Pictures of Christ in Isaiah. We see the virgin birth in chapter 7, verse 14. He's the light of Galilee in chapter 9. 1-2, one through two. He's the divine child in nine six, mighty God in nine six, wonderful counselor and prince of peace in nine six. He's the branch of Jesse in eleven one, the anointed king in eleven two, the banner of the nations in eleven ten, the holy one of Israel in twelve six. He's the angel of the Lord in thirty seven thirty six. In chapter forty verse three he has a forerunner preparing his way. In forty verse nine he is the incarnate God, God incarnate in the flesh. He's the servant of the Lord in chapter forty two, the Redeemer of Israel in chapter forty four, the light of the Gentiles in chapter 49. Praise God for that, because that's who we are. He's the suffering servant in chapter 52 and 53. He's the resurrected Lord at the end of 53. He's the anointed Messiah in 61. He's the coming conqueror in chapter 66. The book breaks down chapters 1 through 6, 7 through 12, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Chapters 13 through 23 are prophecies against the nations, showing that God will hold all people accountable. Chapters 36 through 39 are prayers for deliverance. In fact, chapters 38 and 39 chronologically go before 36 and 37, but they're placed at the end for intentional literary purposes. You'll find there uh, things dealing with Hezekiah. In fact, you'll see during Hezekiah's reign, Isaiah the prophet uh, consoling him and encouraging him. Isaiah really splits in half. There's 1 through 39, and then there's 40 through 66. 40 through 66, and this is is key here, and so I'm going to try to not confuse all of us, chapters 40 through 66 are what we would call prophetic encouragement. And very specifically, the prophecy of those chapters will actually be directed to the people of Judah in exile 300 years later. And I encourage you, if you've never read those chapters, read them, but also read them from the vantage point of being one who has watched for the sake of your own idolatry, your nation absolutely pummeled, deported under the yoke of oppression in a foreign land, and then read those chapters. I will never forget being in college and in an Old Testament class and that connecting and then reading those chapters and just being blown away. In fact, for me personally, my favorite portion of scripture is Isaiah 40 through 66. I just That's for me personally a place where God has, has spoken and consoled me and convicted me and and we'll come back to a specific chapter here, but oh, the things we could say of Isaiah. Isaiah is a wonderful book. He starts in the year of King Uzziah's death. Following Uzziah, we're going to see King Jotham come to the throne. Isaiah will continue to be prophesying. He's going to reign for 16 years, Jotham. In addition to Isaiah, Micah the prophet, Micah the prophet will step onto the scene. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. It's going to be during Micah's ministry that Assyria completely destroys the northern kingdom. That's where we ended last week with 722 B.C. Assyria, that's the Ninevites, come and absolutely obliterate the northern kingdom. That will happen in in Micah's prophetic ministry. Micah and Isaiah are very interesting combo. If Isaiah, we know for sure Isaiah had access to the royal court, whether or not he was a cousin of the king. So you have an insider of great prestige, and Micah was an outsider who came from a small village, and his preaching influenced King Hezekiah to repent when the Assyrians invaded. Uh, Micah, at chapter 1, verse 14, shows you this, this small town nobody who follows the Lord's call. If You go, where's Micah? It's right after Jonah. Hopefully, you know where Jonah is. We spent a little time there. Um, and jo- in Micah, chapter 1, verse 14, it describes that he is not just prophesying. He has to prophesy against his own town. He gives a message of judgment. In fact, it's, what's there is uh, social injustice became common. We saw that last week. We see it's common in Judah. There was legal and illegal means through which the wealthy and the powerful conspired to steal the land of needy families. And you got to understand, the land was given by God. God said, it's my land, and it's my gift to each one of the families. And so that if ever a family lost their property, that's part of what was to take place in the year of Jubilee, is that prophecy? That property was to return because that property was God's gift to the family, and no one had the right to take it away. It's part of where Ahab got in trouble. He took the God-given land of another Israelite, and God takes that seriously, yet this is what was taking place. The people believed that they were guaranteed the blessings of God apart from any obedience to the covenant, and not just when we say covenant, that covenant for them, it meant proper worship. In, in the, at the temple. It meant proper sacrifices. It meant proper discipleship in the home. It meant proper uh, business dealings, proper society. I mean, it was, it was holistic for everything. They believed, well, because we're in the covenant, uh, that they would be it. And they wanted prophets who would only proclaim good things. In fact, there were prophets, prophets false prophets who said, no, you, what you're doing is God's peace and there's no judgment coming. In fact, Micah will make fun of them in chapter one and two saying that Really, the perfect prophets for the people of Judah, the perfect prophets for them are, uh, are those who would promise them more beer and wine. Just continue to drink and be merry and ignore the reality of what's going around. Um, you see corrupt leadership. You see these things. This is uh, the message of Micah, but it ends with the message of hope that if they cried out, God would hear their cries and restore them. In addition, it's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the, pro- the prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem occurs. So Micah is in the same time. We go from King Ahaziah to King Ahaz, who's going to reign 16 years. During Ahaz's reign, this is when the northern kingdom will fall. Both Isaiah and Micah are still prophesying. Following the fall of the northern kingdom uh, in 722 BC, we're going to see King Hezekiah come to the throne. There's going to be reforms under Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to do some things well. He's going to respond to Isaiah's encouragement. He's going to respond, as we mentioned a second ago, to Micah's Micah's prophecy and and walk in repentance and on some things. He's also going to be foolish. In fact, it's Hezekiah who's going to take some diplomats from the up-and-coming people of Babylon who come to visit Jerusalem, and he's going to say, "Hey, come right in. Let me take you in the temple and show you all the treasures." And it will be that same nation about two, uh, 150 years later who comes in and takes away all those treasures and destroys them and obliterates them. Uh, after Hezekiah, though Hezekiah reigns, and you see Hezekiah in Second Kings chapter 18 through Second Kings uh, chapter uh, 20. Uh, you see him come in after, after. Uh, wow, that's First Kings. Uh, you see Hezekiah is, of course, the one who gets ill. He's the one who asks for more years. God grants him that, but in those latter years, he makes that mistake. So Hezekiah, there's more that could be said. Hezekiah, of course, is probably most famous for the Bible teacher who tries to trick you and show you how you don't have Bible knowledge. He says, hey, everybody, we're going to turn today to Second Hezekiah Chapter 3, and everyone goes <laughs> trying to find it, and it's not there. It was, it was at Hezekiah's name that was one of the greatest and most horrible youth ministry moments of my life where I was brought up on stage at Glorietta in a Bible drill and with other youth pastors, and they said, turn to Hezekiah, and I didn't flinch and didn't do it. because so I'm like, I'm not dumb. You can't pull that one over me. And, uh, and so on one hand, I was like, yeah. I, I, I didn't fall for it in the moment of competition. And then I felt really guilty because all the other youth pastors did. And I was like, oh, shoot, I didn't want to make them look bad. And now, I've, anyways, it was, it was a no-win situation. It's why I don't like being the one called up for games in front of people, never. <clears throat> After Hezekiah, I want you to look at this. Manasseh, chapter twenty one, Second Kings. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations who the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father destroyed. He erected altars for Baal. He made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. So we're not just worshiping Baal and his mistress. Any God that a star represents, we're worshiping. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire. He sacrificed his child. He practiced witchcraft. He used divination, sorcery. He dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he, then he set the carved image of the Asher, which he made in the house of which the Lord said to David and his son of Solomon, I've chosen this place for my name. Um, Manasseh, and listen, the people, verse 9, but the people did not listen and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Manasseh. so you have this back and forth of good kings who end kind of poorly, but not with idolatry. Then you have bad kings with idolatry. Then you get to Manasseh. And Manasseh just throws the floodgates open. In fact, Manasseh will do more, more wickedness than anything that the kings of Israel did. He will bring it all down. It will be under his reign that, that God's patience with Israel, he decides that uh, under his reign that things are going to go south. In fact, let me show you there in 2 Kings verse 11, God speaking, because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before them, he has made Judah sin. Remember, there's this reminder that so the leader of the people goes, so the people go. And the language that Manasseh seduced them implies it's not just that the people decided, oh, Manasseh's doing it, we'll do it too. Manasseh worked to get them to fall. Because of all of this, God says, I am going to bring such a calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem, the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it up and down and upside down. I will abandon my remnant of my inheritance. I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. They will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight." and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came to Egypt. Moreover, verse 16, Manasseh shed much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin, with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you go to Chronicles, Chronicles will record an instance where Manasseh was approached about some specific sin, and Manasseh had a moment of humility where he repented. Now remember, Chronicles is going to highlight the positive things because it's written to the people coming back from exile, so that's why you see that there. But even Chronicles will affirm Manasseh is the most wicked ruler that either kingdom has the whole time. In fact, tradition holds. If you'll remember in, a, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith chapter, there is a comment made in there you know, it goes through several big names, and then what more shall I say? Time fails me. It's good to know that even the writers of Scripture who are writing letters felt like time failed them. Uh, they ran out of time is what that means. There's more to say. Gideon, Barak, Samson, he goes down, and, and he mentions in here, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty. Women received back their dead by resurrections. Others were tortured, not accepting their release. Um, why am I missing it here? They Oh, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. Tradition holds and has long held that that is a reference to Isaiah, who under King Manasseh would have been sawn in two. And Manasseh would have killed the one who put Isaiah to death, drawing that to a conclusion. Um, It's going to be in Manasseh's reign that Isaiah's ministry will finish. Nahum the prophet will arise. Uh, Nahum is going to prophesy destruction on the Ninevites, on Assyria. That will come, of course, at the hands of, ultimately, the Babylonians and the Persians. Manasseh's son, Ammon, and then we get to Josiah. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to stop our, our move here. I want to come back to a chapter for a final application. We'll pick up with Josiah next week. Uh, obviously, and we'll, we'll kind of come back, hit, hit Manasseh, and come through. But I want you real quick, you need to, we all need to understand, like I mentioned last week, that when we read these passages, if instantly we jump in the Old Testament to, wow, look at how much this is like the world around us, It's not inappropriate to do that. My goodness, it is much like the world around us. But but we need to be careful that we don't automatically assume that we're the righteous king who's going to lead reform and miss the fact. When you read a prophetic book calling judgment like Nahum on Assyria, that's dealing with the world around us. When you read what's going on in Kings and Chronicles, that's dealing with the idolatry of God's people. We're God's people. And it should be a first warning that as we walk through this, we don't find ourselves in. And part of the reason why I point out some of these kings of Judah, Manasseh obviously is just flat out, how can we bring anything that dishonors the one true God and let's do it? But you also had some good kings who said, we're going to honor God. We're going to seek God. We're going to be about God. But every one of them thus far finishes poorly. So this is what we'll, this is what I want to conclude and draw your attention to tonight as we do this. That means there are time there were times quite literally for Judah. I think I got to phrase it. Let me just turn to Isaiah fifty-eight, or if, or if you don't turn there, just make a mark, write it in your notes. And don't worry, those of you who inquire, I'm watching the clock. We got six minutes. I will. I will pray and ask the Lord to bless all of us at seven o'clock. Isaiah fifty-eight. Listen to what it says. Verse two. Talking about the people of Judah. Talking about the people of of, of, of Judah. Yet they seek me day by day and they delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They asked me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Listen to what God says. They go about day by day appearing to seek me, delighting to know me, they believe they're walking righteously, that they've not forsaken my commands. They are asking me for justice. They are delighting in my presence being near, which leads them to verse three to say, God, why have we fasted and you don't see? Why have we humbled yourselves and you don't see? These are people who not only are claiming to seek God, but they're they're going further. They're fasting. They're humbling themselves, laying themselves out on sackcloth. God, show us yourself. Why are you not showing us? And look what God's answer is. Behold, On the day of your fast, you find your desire. You drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is a fast like this, which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even acceptable day to the Lord? Well, here's the catch. Does that not sound like what God commanded for a day of fasting to look like? Is not this the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked one, to cover him, to not hide yourself from your own flesh, God says, is this not really? All those physical actions are meant to reflect a broken and contrite spirit. Is not the fast which I am looking for one in which you humble yourselves and ask for forgiveness for the amount of sin that you think you're not guilty of, but is rampant among you? Here's why I point that out. I remember when I read that chapter for the first time and I remember reading it going, wait a minute. Why is God telling them that basically from everything I read in there, they're seeking God? Yet God's standing here saying, you're not seeking me at all. You're crying out for me to bring revival. Look what he says, verse 8. When you do this, when all of a sudden you actually love me in a way where your love for me translates into loving your neighbor and being faithful to what I've called you to in every area of life and not just the commands you like spiritually, Then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of your Lord will be your rear God. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and He will say, here I am. He will remove the yoke from your midst. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the oppression from your midst, the pointing of fingers and the speaking of wickedness, maybe we could say the slander of each other's character, the shots on Twitter, the gossip behind each other's back, If you give yourself for the hungry, if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom the moon day, and the Lord will continuously guide you. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places, give strength to your bones. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water who waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell." Church family, here is the scary reality. For a lot of years, we as churches in America have cried out for revival. God very clearly says in his word that if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, if we will repent of our wicked ways, he will heal. Healing hasn't come, which leads me to conclude the problem isn't with why God's not moving, but there's maybe sin we're not willing to own that we delight to come to the house of God, which statistics say we don't actually delight to come to the house of God because the average church person only comes less than two times a month. And I just shared this with the deacons. I hadn't heard this stat before, but Papaw told me over 16 years ago, he asked Lifeway to do research what percentage of an average Southern Baptist church's members are are present on any given Sunday. And over 16 years ago, it was only 38% of members are ever present on any given Sunday. So we don't really desire to go to the house of the Lord and worship, but let's say we do. we delight like to praise the Lord. We'd like to say, we want you to move. We want you to work, God. We want you to do this. Obviously, there is something off. And part of what I do think God may be up to right now is we watch things getting nastier and nastier in this country is it better cause a desperation and an openness in all of our lives to go? Where have we claimed the traditions of man as holy scripture when they're not? Where have we been guilty of holding on to things we shouldn't? Where have we said things are God-honoring that aren't? Where have we been guilty of, of essentially taking God's word? And, 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 I, and I'm feisty about it because there's some specific things today that I was dealing with that have nothing to do with anything here at Pflugerville. So understand, my feistiness isn't directed at anybody personally. And it includes me throwing me under the bus first because I am desperate that we be a people of God that when we pray for revival, revival comes. And I am so tired of playing patty cake church And watching my generation and other generations die and fall prey to other things, why we bicker about what color carpets are and where the water fountains are and what style of music is and whether or not we liked what music we sang that day and whether or not we did VBS or sports camp or this or that, we follow God. And I am tired of playing patty cake in the name of Jesus when eternity is on the line. We are the closest thing unless Jesus shows up in a a miraculous way to somebody. We are the closest thing anybody's going to see to Him face to face before judgment day. We better humble ourselves and get right with Him. 7 o'clock, I told you I'd pray, so let's pray. Father, I just pray that we as a church would just truly love You. And God, where your word exposes sin in our life, whatever it may be. God, rather than trying to find other opinions to try to justify our sin, we just say like Isaiah, forgive me, here am I. God, that when you put someone in our path and you say, hey, I want you to go minister to that person. Or here's an opportunity to take care of the afflicted. Here's, here's an opportunity to care for the homeless. Here's an opportunity to go to your neighbor that we wouldn't try to find. We just say, here am I. God, our churches, we, we talk about, I feel like, in our, in our stuff, we talk about revival all the time. Lord, and I truly believe you will bring it. But we have to really be willing to repent of our sin. The ways we've made church a business and a country club to suit our personal preferences. The ways we as pastors have decided to operate more like CEOs than shepherds the ways we've decided to be more like motivational speakers rather than desiring to speak your prophetic word truly and faithfully for you and your glory, the way in which, Lord, that we as believers have so many other loves that make us people of double minds. And God praise you that for as messed up as we are, you haven't abandoned us yet, that you are faithful even if we are faithless. That if we are washed in the blood, you still are with us. You are still for your good in our life. You won't quit your work in our life. You still desire. if we're if we're this side of heaven, you still desire not just to work in us, but through us. Your grace is staggering, and your patience is so far beyond what we could ever dream. But Lord, may we not fail. May we not miss Isaiah moments to see you in your glory, to let your glory expose our sin, God to turn back to you and right fellowship if, we're, if we've already been saved, Lord. And so I do pray for us that we would humble ourselves, as First Baptist Flugerville. God, if there is any sin in our midst, personally or corporately, that it would be exposed, that we would be faithful to confess it. God, we could put together, from a human standpoint, the most incredible programming and worship experience we could ever dream of. And if it's not you moving, it won't matter. So Lord, I do ask that you would bring healing. That you would bring healing and revival in our hearts in First Baptist Pflugerville. That you would bring healing and revival in the churches, our sister churches in the area. That you would bring healing and revival in our sister churches throughout the country. Father, as you bring revival, you would then bring awakening in the land. And God, that I, as you, as your church receives your healing, Lord, that there might be a third and true great awakening in this land. Not so we can just have comfort in a quiet life. But Lord, I do hope for that but because every face of every person we see, whether they are sweet and kind or whether they are raging and screaming at us, every face of every person we see who does not know you, you love dearly and was made to know you. And Lord, oh, we pray that they would awaken and respond to you. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.